Good morning. This week's scripture comes from the book of Luke, and I'm reading from chapter 7, verse 36, through chapter 8, verse 3. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster the alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, He went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is the word of the Lord. We're exploring... What the Bible says about leadership in the church in particular. But let me begin by telling you a story. As, as a young pastor, I learned along with the other elders and pastors I served with, I learned um, the hard way uh, through several difficult, painful experiences uh, that when, when male leadership attempts to help uh, females who are in distress and hurting. If men are not wise, and if men don't take good advice from female perspective, a lot of unintentional hurt and harm can be done. That makes things even worse. That brings even more harm and more hurt, even if unintended. 
as the elders and deacons and pastors that I served with when I was younger, as we would come alongside of hurting women in distress, uh, I, I began to see uh, that there was a lot of miscommunication uh, in conversations, misunderstandings. Uh, what do certain words mean? What do certain gestures mean? Uh, what, what are unspoken expectations uh, that you need to be aware of as a leader uh, that may go unsaid and yet are very much importantly felt? Um, much unintended harm, even though we were trying to help. And the way some... The way some denominations in the last century have addressed this difficult dynamic is by ordaining women uh, to offices, elder, pastor, deacon. You may have noticed, uh, we are a, a, a church of the Presbyterian Church in America. You may have noticed, and if you haven't yet, surprise, um, uh, the PCA ordains only men uh, to the offices of elder and deacon. Um, and I wanted to be upfront about that. And, and talk to you about that personally and directly, because I think that's the best way to handle a challenging issue. And, and I'm going to gently attempt to address what, what is, uh, I believe, uh, a biblical concept that swims hard against the current of our culture today. And I'm going to try and do it in a respectful way. And if you have questions or concerns as, as I talk, I'm going to stay here at the end of the service, and I'll just be right here or in the front row. And if you want to talk about it, if you have more questions, you just come up, and I'd be happy to chat about it. During Jesus' day, it, it was well known, it was, a, it was a custom for some Jewish men to thank God every day that they were not Gentiles, that they were not slaves, and that they were not women. But I really think that the Gentile concept of Jesus' day was perhaps even more misogynistic and chauvinistic. The Greek orator and statesman Demosthenes wrote this. The prostitutes we have for our pleasure, the concubines for the daily care of our bodies, and our wives so that we can have legitimate children and a true guardian of the house. But women were at the center of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus held women in the highest regard. And what I want to show you today is that a healthy church reflects the compassion of Christ with the wisdom of Christ regarding this issue. Jesus' compassion toward women was countercultural refreshingly countercultural because it was actually biblical. You heard Johanna today read from the beginning of Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, he went on, Jesus went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Right? So this was his ministry. This is what he did. And it says the 12, being the disciples, the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. That means out of their own possessions and wealth. 
So here we see Luke records for us that women were administratively supporting the ministry of Jesus and were part of his inner circle. And I've included the account of Luke chapter 7 in the reading today of of the woman who interrupted Simon the Pharisee's dinner party. Um, I've included that passage in order to give what Luke is saying uh, some more context. But women weren't excluded from Christ's life. And from his ministry, countercultural to social customs of his day, he conversed with women in public. Jewish men, they didn't do that. The Bible, the Old Testament says nothing about that. But the rabbinical religious tradition said, don't talk to women in public. And there was Jesus doing it. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. Jesus blessed women. He taught women. He healed women. Actually, a woman was the first to understand one of his parables. Check it out. Mark chapter 7, Matthew chapter 15. A Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman. That's the parable of the children and the dogs and the crumbs from the table. And the woman, at least according to the Gospels, was was, the first recorded person to get one of Jesus' parables. You have the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they don't understand the parables. You have the disciples, they don't get the parables. Here is a Gentile woman, and she gets one of his parables, and in Matthew 15, he turns to her and says, great is your faith. He was amazed by this woman's faith. In the ancient world, females could not testify in a court of law. They could not serve as witnesses in a judicial case. And yet women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. If the people who wrote the New Testament were trying to invent a story about a man who rose from the dead, they would have never written into their story that two women were the first to witness his resurrection. But there they were. In a world that treated women as second-class citizens, the Bible regarded women with refreshing dignity. They were created as equal, as co-image bearers to men, as seen in the creation account, read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And throughout the Old Testament, you see women like Miriam, who led singing after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, and Rahab, who saved the Jews, and Ruth, who became part of the Messianic line and one of David's grandmothers. And Deborah, Deborah who led Israel, and Abigail who saved David's life by her wisdom, and Esther who saved her people from genocide, and the woman mentioned and described in Proverbs 30. These are women of faith who by faith moved mountains, so to speak. And so Jesus, in that tradition, Jesus and his apostles and the early church preserved feminine dignity. But we have to apply Jesus' beautiful compassion with his unique wisdom. We have to put it together. You see, Jesus' wisdom on leadership was also countercultural. It is still countercultural. Jesus had no problem. I've already established this. Jesus had no problem breaking social customs and norms to make a point and to begin a new paradigm or pattern. He had no problem breaking cultural customs, social barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers. He had no problem with doing any of that. 
And he had the perfect opportunity during his ministry to appoint male and female apostles. But the 12 were men. When Judas was replaced in Acts chapter 1, his replacement was a man. When the seven were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to deal with a matter of injustice amongst the widows uh, of the church in Jerusalem, uh, the church selected men. Jesus had an opportunity to start a new paradigm in his own ministry, and he didn't. The Apostle Paul, while encouraging women to serve in mercy ministry and in disciple making, also clarified in more than one place uh, that church leadership and authoritative teaching within the church was a task assigned to men. And nowhere in the New Testament did we see, as we read through the history and in the letters, uh, do we see an ordination like laying on of hands uh, given to women. Now, this all seems odd and even offensive to our cultural sensitivities, I know. And so some have adopted what I want to call uh, the egalitarian view. And the egalitarian view is this, that, that since God created men and women as equal in his sight, as co-image bearers, that they both bear the image of God, since they are created as equal, therefore, they are equal in role. But the complementarian view is the view of our denomination. Men and women are created as equal in God's sight, as equal heirs of the inheritance of Christ's salvation, and yet are distinct in their roles given to them by God. So egalitarianism created as equal with no distinctions. Complementarianism created as equal with some distinctions that complement one another to make the image of God in men and women together whole. And this concept of complementarianism, it comes from the biblical concept of headship. Adam was humanity's head. That's why in the New Testament, uh, Adam is blamed for humanity's sin. Our sin is in Adam, the New Testament tells us. Jesus is the head of the new, redeemed, reconciled humanity. Husbands are heads. Fathers are heads. Elders in the church are heads. The Apostle Paul, let me illustrate it for you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, that last phrase is very interesting. The head of Christ is God. Do you see this? That the Trinity itself, within the Trinity, is an exhibition of both equality and headship. So in the very nature of God, those who are equal nonetheless submit to one another. I believe that patriarchy was the result of human sin. When men in this world dominate and take advantage of women. I believe that is the result of human sin. But headship is pre-fall. Headship was part of the created order. And headship promotes not domination, but responsibility. Headship does not promote self-serving domination. Biblical headship promotes sacrificial responsibility. 
let me explain it to you this way. Uh, Becky and I have many kids. And let's say we leave the house for a date or for a ministry meeting. We say to the kids, we're going out for a couple of, and we, we have kids of all ages, so some are old enough to babysit. We say to the kids, we're going out for a couple of hours. Be good. Be nice to each other. We're coming back. And let's say my seven-year-old says to me, well, who's in charge while you're gone? And I say, we're in charge. Mom and I are in charge. But you're leaving. You're not going to be here. Mom and I are always in charge, even when we're gone. But I want you to listen to your old, I want you to listen to your 17-year-old sister. um, Because I'm putting her I'm making her responsible for what happens while I'm out of the house. And the simple reason I make the olders responsible for the youngers when we're out of the house is very simple reason. They came first. They came first. And that's exactly the Apostle Paul's reason for talking about male headship in church leadership. He simply says, not because men are more intelligent, men... Um, are more insightful, are more gifted, are more capable. Uh, history and, and biblical wisdom and the reality of nature itself has shown us that that is not true at all. But Paul said Adam came first. And therefore, Adam was responsible for what happened in the garden. And Adam was responsible for what happened in his family. And so elders, as men, are responsible for what happens in God's church So leadership is not some self-imposed perk. It is a God-given burden. Nonetheless, God doesn't withhold gifts and talents from women. I think early what Rachel said to the kids. uh, Expanding on what she said, I think she's exactly right. I don't believe the creator withholds any gifts or talents or abilities from women that men have. Um. Nonetheless, uh, we teach and we practice uh, the idea of equality in God's eyes and equality in the kingdom of Christ's salvation uh, with distinctive roles. Actually, the book of church order, which is it's kind of like a book of bylaws for our denomination, um, kind of like a book of bylaws. Uh, The book of church order says that it is often expedient that the session of a church, that's the the board of elders, that the session of a church uh, should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and those who, excuse me, those who may be in distress or need. In my former church, the way we handled and responded to those painful experiences of getting it wrong when we were trying to meet the needs of women who were struggling or hurting, uh, trying to just understand uh, the needs and perspectives of women, one of the things we developed was uh, a, a recognized role called women's advocates. And we would, we would identify and recruit and train and vet and commission godly women uh, who loved Jesus and loved his church and were faithful to the Bible, and, and had a, a, a reputation of, of good character and, wis- and godly wisdom, uh, we would recruit and commission such women to come alongside of, the, of women who were working with the elders and the deacons. And actually, uh, the role was to facilitate healthy, clear dialogue between distressed women 
and church leaders uh, in order to bring healing and justice. Uh, because what I found was when, when you ask a hurting woman uh, to sit down with five or ten men, uh, there, are also, there are all sorts of problems and ramifications uh, that result if the men are not, are not wisely and compassionately considering what her needs are. So we developed the concept of women's advocates, and it made a big difference. And my hope here as your pastor is to develop that role. I don't know what it'll be called. Maybe we'll come up with another name for it. Uh, but I would like to see us as a church, uh, after we finally have our own elders in place, to develop the ministry of women's advocacy. And actually, you know, we're a church plant. We're, we're barely two years old regarding public worship. And already women have from the very beginning. I can't imagine this church uh, without some of these women, uh, have from the very beginning uh, been a critical part of our endeavors in ministry. Um, a, woman, uh, a, a woman manages most of our finances. A woman leads our children's ministry. A woman co-leads our music ministry. A woman directs and coordinates our book table that is designed to enrich your lives with biblical wisdom and, and cultural perspective on what's going on in the world. Um, that same woman helped edit the, all the content uh, that I created for our website. Um, women are involved in the leadership of our community groups. A woman co-leads our hospitality ministry. Deep Run Church supports uh, the staffer at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at McDaniel College, who is a woman. InterVarsity at McDaniel is bringing on another staffer in several months, and we are going to support her as well. Jesus was nothing like a bigot. You can accuse men and churches and leadership boards of bigotry and chauvinism and misogyny. Granted, and sometimes guilty. But when you look at Jesus, all of that melts away. He does make us uncomfortable, though, doesn't he? Like a good teacher, Jesus makes you uncomfortable. He pushes you. He stretches you. He brings you to places you're not comfortable to go. He brings you outside of your comfort zone so that you have to wrestle with his compassion and wrestle with his wisdom at the same time. God's wisdom, Paul told us, it seems like foolishness to the world. But by faith, we can apply this concept of headship with compassion. With compassion. So we are going to be a church where we encourage ministry roles that promote your dignity and that do not suppress opportunities for you to serve your Lord and to serve one another, especially if you're a woman. We cannot forsake God's wisdom for what some people call compassion. We can't do that, friends. Now, granted, Leaders, and those who are in oversight, are often tempted to neglect the gifts of other people and are tempted to suppress opportunities for others to serve and use their gifts fully and in freedom and to come into leadership. It happens all the time. And, it, and, and sadly, even worse, it happens in religion and it happens in churches where those who are in authority ignore other people's gifts and suppress opportunities for other people to serve and even to lead. It happens all the time. 
and even in the church and even in religion, injustice occurs and the strong oppress the weak. Granted. But it's also tempting, would you agree with me? It's, it's also tempting for those without authority to manipulate and undermine in order to get their way. What Christians need, actually, what the world needs is a healthy and beautiful church. And the church can't be healthy and beautiful when those who lead ignore and undervalue and suppress the gifts of God's daughters and of his sons. And the church can't be beautiful and the church can't be a blessing when those who follow usurp authority for their own advantage or dominance. Elizabeth Elliot was a wife and a mother and a linguist and a missionary. And it turns out she was a pretty amazing writer and author. She did mission work in the 1950s in South America. After losing her husband on the mission field, he was killed by those that they were trying to reach. Uh, a village that eventually uh, embraced Christianity. It's an amazing story. Read the book Through Gates of Splendor by her. Nonetheless, when Elizabeth Elliot returned to the States as, as an American who had been away for a while, she came back in the 60s uh, during all this cultural upheaval and change in America. And later in the 1990s, she looked back on that time and since then, uh, and she expresses what she saw as an American who had left America, had spent time working with an indigenous people group and came back into our culture uh, as we, were, we began to wrestle through these issues in the 60s. Um, her, this is a, actually an excellent chapter in the book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's on our book table. I'm going to quote her extensively here because I think she says it better than anybody else I've heard. She said, she wrote, speaking of, speaking of what she learned as she watched Native American men and women work together equally but with distinct roles in South America, she said uh, that their perspective, among other things, convinced me that this civilized business of roles is nearly always, to put it bluntly, a peer struggle. Coming back to this country and listening to a good many solemn dialogues on the roles of women in this or that or the other thing, I noticed that this or that or the other thing was never anything to do with fishing or farming or writing a book or giving birth to a baby, but always something that touched in some way on questions of authority or power or competition or money rather than on the vastly prior issue of the meaning, and she italicized the word meaning, the meaning of sexuality in politics, in big business, in higher education. Feminism is frequently discussed, but femininity, never. She went on to write, I am not here to defend stereotypes of femininity but to try to focus on the original pattern. And she capitalized those words, original pattern. 
She went on to talk about Adam and Eve and how they were created as good and equal to one another. And how Adam came first and how Eve was his helper, that he couldn't accomplish his God-given directives without her. That they had to be seen together as bearing the image of God. And she went on to say these two people, Adam and Eve, together represent the image of God. One of them is in a special way the initiator, the other the responder. Neither the one nor the other was adequate alone to bear the divine image. And then she talked about their fall. And she writes, they rejected their humanity, arrogating to themselves the knowledge of good and evil, a burden too heavy for human beings to bear. Eve, in her refusal to accept the will of God, refused her femininity. Adam, in his capitulation to her suggestion, abdicated his masculine responsibility for her. It was this, fir- this was the first instance of role reversal. This defiant disobedience ruined the original pattern, and things have been in an awful mess ever since. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, But the male-female conflict, because we've been in conflict, would you agree, since the fall. The male-female conflict finds healing in God's compassion and wisdom. Because the gospel is all about compassion and wisdom. Elizabeth Elliot kept writing. The gospel story begins with the mystery of charity. A young woman... Now, I've mentioned a lot of women so far, but I haven't mentioned one yet. Mary. A young woman is visited by an angel, Elliot wrote, giving a stunning piece of news about becoming the mother of the Son of God. Unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary's answer holds no hesitation about risks, or losses, or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Luke chapter 1. This is what I understand to be the essence of femininity. It means surrender. But she continued, think of a bride. She surrenders her independence, her name, her destiny, her will, herself to the bridegroom in marriage. In the marriage chamber, she surrenders her body, her priceless gift of virginity, all that has been hidden. As a mother, she makes a new surrender. It is her life for the life of the child. This most profoundly is what women were made for. Married or single. And the special vocation of the virgin, she means single women. Their special vocation is to surrender herself for service to her Lord and for the life of the world. And Eliot continued that femininity receives. It says, may it be to me as you have said. It is for us women to receive the given as Mary did not to insist on the not given as Eve did. And she concludes by writing, 
To gloss over these profundities is to deprive women of the central answer to the cry of their hearts, who am I? No one but the author of the story can answer that cry. So let's consider as we close what the author of the story has revealed to us through his son. Jesus, Jesus covered both roles as initiator and responder. Jesus, as initiator, pursued you. He rescued you. He defended you. And he's coming back for you. But Jesus also acted as responder. Jesus received the full curse of God's wrath on the cross. It was his life for the life of the world. It was his life for your life, for my life. And if men and women would look to Jesus to find our identity, not, not what we want to be, but what we are, if we would look to Jesus to discover what masculinity is, guys, if we would look to Jesus, sisters, to discover what femininity is, I think we would show the world a much healthier dynamic where everyone serves with freedom and with joy. Everyone employs their gifts. Everyone serves in love with dignity. And nobody's abilities are overlooked and no one's opportunities are suppressed. That's what this church is going to be by the grace of God. A healthy church reflects the compassion of Jesus with the wisdom of Jesus. A healthy church applies Christ's compassion with wisdom. We bring it all together. So I am praying and let's pray that we become a church. I think we already are, but we need to stay this way. That we become a church where your ministry roles are not hindered, are encouraged, are blessed, where your gifts are encouraged and facilitated and blessed, where everyone's dignity is restored to them as we serve together under the guidance of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you know uh, the degree to which I have wrestled with these ideas for years and have wrestled with your spirit and have wrestled with your word um, and with the culture, um, not wanting to stand up here and talk about this. Uh, nonetheless, here I am by your grace. Father, uh, on behalf of the men in this room and uh, in the church, in, in all churches, I ask for forgiveness. Uh, I, I ask for forgiveness, Father, for overlooking the gifts and needs of women. I ask by your grace that... Uh, you would help us repent of that and to bless and love our sisters and our mothers and our daughters in the faith uh, with a Christ-like compassion, relying upon his wisdom. And that this would be a beautiful and healthy church where gifts are encouraged and not overlooked. Uh, but Father, give us wisdom because the world has a lot to say and... Um, in many ways, we are seen as fools. So help us to be grounded in your word 
and to be grounded by the compassion of Christ. In his name, we praise you. Amen.